Section 4 of Other People's Lives This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Other People's Lives by Rosa Nouchette Carey Book 2 The Idols of a Vicarage Chapter 3 Miss Patience Goes Home Mr. Wentworth had been vicar of Sandylands five years, when the second great trouble of his life came to him. By that time, the little sister had become very intimate at the vicarage, and had grown to love Miss Patience dearly. Little by little, the few pitiful details of a disappointed life had been filtered with difficulty through the dim, ineffective ears, to the bright intelligence and warm, womanly heart, and it was wonderful how soon she grasped the whole truth. Some people will think it strange that I have spoken of myself in the third person, but it has seemed to me far better, when one is relating the stories of one's friends, to stand outside oneself, as it were, and to mingle with the crowd as bystanders and loiterers are wont to do. For even to the least egotistical of mortals it is difficult to resist the temptation to group all incidents and situations round the central ego, and to stamp one's friends with the everlasting impress of one's own personality as though they were puppets in some show that only move to particular wires and dance as their owner bids them. This danger, then, let me once and forever eschew by calling myself by the name given me by the simple villagers, the little sister, or our little lady up at Fair Cottage, or to a few, just Miss Merrick or Clare. Those hours spent at the vicarage were dearly prized by the little sister, and she recalls especially one winter's afternoon when she and Miss Patience sat together, not talking much, but enjoying that pleasant sense of fellowship that even the silent presence of a congenial companion sometimes affords, and how she felt suddenly a soft, warm hand on hers, and the low, monotonous voice that she had grown to love broke the stillness. Clare, my dear, I have been thinking so much of you and poor Bessie Martin and, and of others lately. There are so many life skeins in a tangle, are there not? And we are such sad bunglers when we begin to unravel them. But there is a word of comfort for each one of us. What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. There was a slight, tremulous motion of Miss Patience's chin as she said this. Then she repeated more steadily, But thou shalt know hereafter. We may well be patient, Clare, when we think of all our good things heaped up and ready for us there. 
when miss patience's unsuspected malady suddenly developed and she grew daily more ill and suffering the little sister left her rooms at fair cottage and took up her quarters at the vicarage and it was her privilege to nurse her to the end it was long very long before the vicar realized the hopelessness of the case perhaps he closed his eyes wilfully and refused to recognize the truth and dr barrett never attempted to undeceive him there is no need to cross the bridge until we come to it he would say in his rough kindly way the vicar will find it out for himself soon enough miss wentworth will not die just yet and mr cornish fully endorsed this opinion mr cornish was a constant visitor sometimes the servants especially mrs catlin the cook would grumble a little at the extra trouble that his visits involved but barry who was devoted to his master always cut these complaints short i don't see that the professor makes so much difference he would say obstinately what is good enough for the master is surely good enough for any gentleman and it is only laying another place and opening a fresh bottle of claret every day you ought to be ashamed of yourself mrs catlin and you too phoebe making troubles out of nothing when you know how the master loves to have mr cornish smoking his old meerschaum in the chimney corner but there this comes of living with a pack of women and barry would march off to his pantry in a dudgeon while mrs catlin who was a good-hearted creature would add some favourite dainty to the menu in token of her penitence perhaps mr cornish knew that his presence was a comfort to the vicar or he would not have left his beloved rooms at oriel and come down so constantly to sandylands during the long vacation he almost lived at the vicarage miss patience's dim eyes used to brighten when she heard he had come he is so good she whispered to herself he does it for evelyn's sake may god reward him for his faithful friendship now and then there would be a wistful look in her eyes and she would say a word or two that showed where her thoughts had strayed what time is it claire half past eight ah oh, they have finished dinner and have gone back to the study they will be sitting in the big bay watching for the moon to rise behind the firs that is what evelyn loves or again i hope mrs catlin remembers to have fish every day barry has plenty of time to fetch it from the station or crampton's cart would bring it she is a good manager but the best of servants need the mistress's supervision would you give her a hint dear but there with a patient sigh i must learn to leave things i must not be too martha-like now one day mr cornish sent up a message to know if miss wentworth were well enough to see him 
The vicar had dropped a hint during luncheon. He was a little uneasy about his sister, and he wished Cornish would see her and give him his opinion. Perhaps it was only because the heat had tried her, but he thought that she looked more ill than usual. Miss Patience was lying on her couch by the open window in her white dressing gown and close cap. It was a bad day with her, and her deafness seemed worse than ever. It was some time before she could be made to understand the message, and she got sadly flurried and nervous before she grasped it, and then quite a girlish flush came to her face. "'Ah, yes, I can see him,' she said eagerly. "'I'm well enough for that. Will you go and tell him so, Claire? And... and... I think I should like to see him alone. It was evident that Mr. Cornish was not prepared for the sad change, for he started, and his eyebrows contracted with sudden pain, as Miss Patience held out her hand to him with a smile. The wan little face looked pinched and shrunken. There were violet shadows under the soft eyes and the lips were dark and dry, as though with inward fever. "'It is kind of you to come,' she said a little breathlessly. "'But you are always kind, and I have wanted so much to see you, and to thank you for all your goodness to Evelyn.' "'Oh, I have done nothing, nothing at all.' And then, as he sat down by her, the faint rose-leaf flush came again to her cheek, hiding for a few moments the waste and ravage of disease. Anyone who had guessed her secret would have interpreted rightly that yearning tenderness in her eyes. But Douglas Cornish held no such clue. But he felt vaguely troubled and ill at ease. Perhaps at that moment he realised how much he should miss her. For there is something very precious and satisfying in an old friendship, and sympathy from one who cares for us is just the priceless spikenard that was once poured on a kingly head when a feeble woman's hand broke that alabaster box for that sacred anointing. And in her simple, kindly way, Miss Patience had been very good to him. That was how he put it. He said very few words to her, but she evidently heard them. He only made some observation on the lovely clusters of roses that were peeping in at the open window, but she understood him at once. Yes, are they not lovely? she said, with a sweet smile. I tell Claire Merrick that I will not have them touched. They are a message from... The garden that I love. And in the night, when I cannot see them, their fragrance is with me. You do not sleep well, then? he asked, narrowing his eyes as he spoke. But she shook her head sadly at the question. I do nothing well now, she said in her weak voice. But I shall be better. 
by and by. Mr. Cornish, there is a great favour that I want to ask you. And then she stopped and looked at him wistfully. Dear Miss Wentworth, he said gently, we are such old friends, you and I, that surely you need not hesitate a moment. Oh, but you do not know what it is that I am going to ask. But you are so kind, and I know you will not refuse. Something tells me that it will not be long now. Please, do not look sorry because I say that. For when one suffers, the only longing is for rest. But it troubles me that Evelyn does not see. That he will not open his eyes to understand. Do you wish me to tell him? He asked abruptly, but again she shook her head. No. Let him be. He will find it out some day. And then... Oh, I know. He will be so terribly unhappy. All his life I have mothered him, and there is no one... no one... to take my place. Dear friend... And here the thin hand touched his coat-sleeve pleadingly. You will stay with him until it is over. You can help him as no one else can, and I shall be happier to know you are beside him. It will be helping me, too. You need not fear. I will not leave him. This was all his answer. But the keen eyes softened in the way Miss Patience laughed. Thank you she said, with a little sob, and that was all that passed between them. But she grew rather faint and weary after that, and Mr. Cornish in alarm summoned the little sister, and then went out into the fir-wood to avoid answering the vicar's questions. Strange to say, the very next day Miss Patience had another visitor, it was a close, sultry afternoon, and even the roses drooped their sweet heads in the fierce July sunshine, and there was hardly a leaf moving. The birds were all hushed to silence, and only the white butterflies skimmed blithely through the hot air. Miss Patience, who suffered terribly from the heat, was propped up high on her pillows, that she might rest her weary eyes with the dark shadows of the fir-woods. "'If I could only be carried into the woods,' she had said more than once, "'and smell the spicy fragrance of the firs, I think I should feel better.' But of course she knew that it was impossible. The longest journey that she could ever take in this world was just those few steps from the bed to the couch. She had only just uttered this little speech when a note was brought to her. A few pencilled words traced hurriedly on a slip of paper, but as she read them, the small face grew set and stern, and she trembled all over. "'How dare she enter this house?' she said angrily. And then she checked herself, 
No, I was wrong. If we do not forgive, how are we to expect to be forgiven? And then she read the words again. Dear Patience, for the sake of our old friendship, do not refuse to see me. I have come all this way to bid you Godspeed. Your loving Marian. That was all. The silence in the sick room grew more oppressive every minute. Only the humming of a large brown bee broke the silence. But Miss Patience still lay with one hand covering her eyes, and her lips moving as though she were in some dire strait of perplexity and doubt. Then she said in an agitated voice, "'It is a sad trouble to me, but I do not see how I am to refuse. Claire, will you go down to Miss Brett and tell her that I will see her for a few minutes? But she must not stay long. But you will know what to say to her. You are always so kind and wise.' And then the little sister went down to interview the stranger. A tall, stately-looking woman in a long grey cloak was standing by the window. At the sound of the opening door she turned her head, and then the little sister felt a sudden shock of surprise. In all her life she had never seen such a beautiful face. For a long time, after the interview was over, she puzzled herself to think where she had seen it before. And then she remembered the Parian marble bust of Clytie in the vicar's study. And it seemed to her that Marian Brett must have been the model. It was not a young face, by any means. Miss Brett must have been forty at least. But the profile was perfect. The grave, dark eyes a little sunken, were full of fire and sweetness, and under the close bonnet the glorious auburn hair rippled in perpetual sunshine. "'You are the nurse,' she said quickly. She had a deep, musical voice. "'You have come to tell me, I hope, that Miss Wentworth will see me?' "'Yes, she will see you.' returned the little sister, in a hesitating voice. But will you permit me to give you a hint first? I am only the friend who is nursing her, but I love her dearly, and I understand her so well. She is very ill. When you see her, you will find that out for yourself. Her nights are terrible, and she suffers much at times so she can bear very little. Mr. Cornish saw her yesterday for the first time, but it was too much for her, and she was very faint. I will be careful, in a low voice. I know a good deal about illness. I have nursed in a hospital, and there are always sick people round us. Miss Patience was never strong, and that fever undermined her constitution— and yes, I know. And her eyes grew pitiful as the little sister looked at her. Her mother died of it. 
And she was so young, so young. And now, will you let me go to her? For my time is not my own. And then, without a word, the little sister led her to the door. Miss Patience was still lying high on her pillows, but there was a strained, anxious look in her eyes, and two feverish spots had come to her wan cheeks. Marian, why have you come? she said reproachfully, as Miss Brett knelt down by her couch, and as she took the weak little figure in her arms, the grey cloak seemed to envelop her like spreading wings, and the beautiful face had the tender smile of a benignant angel. It is not right that you should enter this house. Surely you must feel that. There is no house in all the world that I should fear to enter, if one whom I loved were on a sick bed. And Marion Brett's voice was clear and unfaltering. Patience, dear Patience, do you not know me by this time? If my friend needed me, I would go into Hades itself. Is there anything that I have ever found too hard to do, if it were in my power to bring comfort? Then Miss Patience shook her head sadly. There is no comfort you can bring to this house. Marion, you mean it kindly. You have a warm heart, and you do not forget, and... And you are sorry for me. But the hand that has inflicted the wound cannot heal it. And the day you destroyed my brother's happiness, I prayed that I might never see your face again. <sighs> if you speak to me like that, I must indeed go. But you do not mean it. We cannot part like this. Is it not pain enough for me to see you lying there, a mere wreck of your old sweet self, that you must add to my sorrow by these bitter words? Patience, you are a good woman. Why can you not understand that one must act up to one's sense of right? If I have caused suffering, have I not suffered myself? Has my life been so easy and happy all these years? Oh, God knows, for only he who made women's hearts knows how much they can bear. The deep, passionate voice, so close to her, made itself partially heard. Then Marion Brett suddenly broke down, and her tears wetted the weak hands that lay so limply folded together. Dear Patience, she sobbed, say something kind to me. Do not leave this world bearing a grudge against me. Oh, if we could only change places, if I could lie there in your stead, how gladly I would yield my life to give you back to him. Then a wan smile came to the sick woman's face. You speak as though you meant it, and I thank you, but it would be cruel kindness. 
I have never wished for a long life, when one's path is silent and solitary. But no, I will not complain. I have had my blessings too, Marion. There shall be peace between us. Forgive me if I spoke too bitterly, but when one has had to see, day by day, the waste and barrenness of a life that might have been so beautiful, it seems to harden one's heart. But I know, of course I know, that you were not wantonly cruel. Thank heaven that at least you can do me that justice. But patience, for the sake of the dear old past, answer me one question. How is he? He is well, but he is very lonely. When I am gone, there will be no one to comfort him. Evelyn takes nothing lightly. His nature is intense, and he never forgets. Marion Brett's head sank for a moment on her hands. When she raised it, there was a strange, troubled look in her eyes. Yes, he always was intense, and I see he has not changed. But if one's prayers were only answered... But one must walk by faith, and life will not last forever. Dear Patience, I must go now. I live in a busy world, and if it were not for my work, I could find it in my heart to envy you. For you are going to a place where there are no mistakes, and no need for self-sacrifice. But I am strong, so strong and my rest will not come yet. Dear, dearest Patience, goodbye, and God bless you. The bitterness has died out of your heart, I can see that, and poor Marion is forgiven. May I kiss you again, dear? And then, for a few seconds, the two women clung together, and this time... The tears were in Miss Patience's eyes. I was too hard, too hard, she whispered. We have no right to judge each other. Now go, and God bless you too. And then, with her head still bent, Marion Brett passed out of the door, just as the vicar crossed the hall on his way to the study. No one had told him of the visitor, and at the sound of the light tread he looked up, and then as the footsteps paused, it seemed to his dazzled eyes as though he were gazing at some wondrous vision. There was a stained glass window at the head of the staircase, which added greatly to its beauty. And there... With a halo of purple and crimson glory behind it stood a motionless grey figure with floating draperies. The thin cloak was flung aside and fell in soft folds from the shoulders, and the close bonnet was pushed back, only showing the veil and the waves of auburn hair, 
while the perfect face for which she had hungered and thirsted all these years was looking down at him with a solemn smile of recognition. No wonder the vicar shaded his eyes as though he were suddenly dizzy, for the dream that had haunted his waking and sleeping hours stood embodied under the oriel window, with strange colours staining its grey raiment. A grand woman, angel, and the glory and the torment of Evelyn Wentworth's life. Most women would have found it a trying ordeal, to be confronted suddenly and unexpectedly with the man they had jilted. But Marion Brett had a strange complex nature, and with all her faults, her grievous mistakes, there was nothing small about her. She took things simply and without self-consciousness. For the moment she was startled. Then the remembrance of the sick-room she had just left seemed to blot out all other thoughts, and she came swiftly down the stairs until she was beside him. Oh, she said a little breathlessly. She is very ill, and it breaks my heart to see her so changed and weak, and there is nothing to be done. Nothing. And now the tears were rolling down her face again, for the sight of physical pain always unnerved her, and she who never knew an ache would quiver with sympathy from head to foot if she witnessed any phase of acute suffering. There was a strange glow in the vicar's eyes, but all he said was, Will you come in here and tell me what you think of her? And then, side by side, they crossed the threshold of the study. But when he offered her a seat, she shook her head, and for the first time a flush of consciousness came to her face. She was in the house of the man she had refused to marry, and they were alone. "'Will you tell me?' he said quietly, and still watching her. "'Why you say there is nothing to be done? "'Barrett is clever and understands her constitution, "'but we can have another opinion. "'Dr. Fremantle was here a month ago, "'but we could have Peacock or Whistler.' "'Then she looked at him in surprise. "'Why should you go to that expense?' "'she said quickly. "'Dr. Peacock could do nothing more than Dr. Barrett is doing.' The disease is too much advanced for any possibility of cure. They will just keep her under powerful narcotics. Then, as she saw how pale he grew, surely they have told you. The doctor, or Mr. Cornish, or the little nurse that I saw just now. You mean Miss Marrick? Oh, she has been our good angel. But Marion... For heaven's sake, speak plainly to me. They have told me nothing. Patience is very ill and suffers much, that is all they say. And they have left it for me. Me, of all people, to tell you. And there was a scared expression on Marion Brett's face. Evelyn, it was cruel of them. Cruel to you and to me. Dear Patience will not be here long. 
she is going home. Those who love her must not be too sorry, for life to her would only mean prolonged suffering. Good God, was all his answer. But as he sank into a chair and covered his face with his hands, as though stricken to the heart, the woman who stood beside him would have given a year of her life for the power to say one word of comfort to him that would not be mockery or mere conventionality from her lips. But Patience's sad speech lingered in her memory and kept her dumb. There is no comfort that you can bring to this house. The hand that has inflicted the wound cannot heal it. Alas, alas, it was the truth. But the silence was horrible to her, and the buzzing of a honey-laden bee round the flower vases seemed to jar on her. Outside, roses and sunshine, and the cool shadow of the woods, and within, the veiled angel of death, and a sweet life wearing itself painfully away and beside her a lonely man who wanted comfort. Then a dry sob seemed to rise in her throat. Evelyn, try to bear it. Life will be over soon, and though she is your dearest... But to her terror, he interrupted her almost roughly. She is not my dearest, nor ever will be. You know that, Marian. But she is the truest and best of sisters. And it will be a sad day for me when I lose her. What? Are you going? For she was straightening the folds of her cloak with trembling fingers, and her eyes were wide and troubled. Do you mean that you refuse to break bread in my house? I refuse nothing. Oh, Evelyn, do not say such things. But I have promised to be at the inn at Brentwood in twenty minutes' time, and the fly is waiting. Indeed, I must not stay another minute. And then she held out her hand to him. I am sorry, she faltered. How sorry even you do not know. But I shall pray for you and dear patience every hour of the day but he made no answer to this. When a man desires to marry the woman that he loves, it gives him small comfort to know that she prays for him. If Marian had prayed less and loved more, he would not be left a lonely man, without wife and child, with only books and friendship to comfort him. And so the strange, unsatisfactory interview ended, and the vicar, standing bareheaded in the sunny road, watched with shaded eyes until the white horse and the shabby fly passed out of sight. Once, moved by some sudden impulse, Marian turned round and saw him, and waved her hand with kind, sad greeting— but he took no notice. Only as he crossed the threshold again, he shivered slightly, 
as though some solemn presence made itself felt. Then he went up to his sister's room, and no one but he and Patience knew what passed between them. It may be that the excitement of these two interviews were too much for Miss Patience in her feeble condition, or perhaps it was only the rapid progress of her insidious disease, but certainly from that time she began to fail, and in a few days she was unable to leave her bed. The strong sedatives that were necessary to alleviate her pain made her confused and drowsy, no voice seemed to reach her, and she often wandered. But now and then, especially towards evening, or when some stimulant had been given her, she would rouse for a little while from her stupor. One lovely August evening, she was lying propped up on her pillows, that she might look out at the pink glow of the sunset. The vicar was sitting beside her as usual, holding her hand, when he suddenly heard the weak, toneless voice speaking to him. Evelyn, do you remember that anthem at Westminster Abbey? Marian was with us, and, and Douglas Cornish. How the faint tones lingered over the last name. It was glorious, glorious, as though a choir of angels were singing it. All day long, at waking intervals, I have been hearing it again. Oh, trust in the Lord, wait patiently for him, and he shall give thee thy heart's desire. Wait. Patiently. And here her voice seemed to die away. But more than once that night the watchers by her bed heard her murmuring broken fragments of the same words and piecing them together with some wandering thought. Thy heart's desire, yours and mine, Evelyn, and all in his own good time. And again, wait patiently for him. Oh, I have failed, but it was so hard and so lonely, and the silence at first seemed so crushing, and yet was any cross too hard for him to bear? And later, when they hoped she was sleeping, and Mr. Cornish was trying to persuade the vicar to take a little rest, the weak voice broke out once again. Wait patiently for him, and he shall give thee thy heart's desire. Dear, dear Evelyn, thy heart's desire. But it was not that night that the merciful angel took her home. There was another day of restlessness and suffering. But towards evening those who loved her most gathered round her bed. The vicar was supporting her, 
and on the other side Mr. Cornish was kneeling. Some tender look in the dying eyes had seemed to welcome him and keep him there. The feeble life was panting itself away when there was a sudden gleam on the sunken face. Evelyn, he said it, and I heard it. Ephatha, be opened. And then the sweet eyes closed, and as Douglas Cornish instinctively laid his strong, warm hand over the little hands that were growing chill with death, Patience Wentworth crossed the threshold between the two she most loved, and then the door of the infinite closed upon her. Those were the words engraved on her tomb, a marble cross with a dove perching on one of the arms, stands just by the gate that leads from the churchyard into the firwood. Patience Wentworth, aged fifty-five, and he said unto her, Ephatha, that is, be opened. End of section four. Read by The Story Girl.